Hi everybody, it's Megan. I have such a lovely show for you today. Kim Murray from Widow411 joins me to talk about what it was like to lose her husband, what it meant to her boys who were 8 and 10 at the time, and how she navigates using belief in signs and spirituality and relying on friends to keep her life moving forward and to create meaning in the spaces of loss. I hope you enjoy the show. If you're listening regularly and want to go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review, that really helps other people find us. Thanks so much. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am very lucky today to be sitting here with Kim Murray, who is from Widow411. That's what we call your platform. And I'm just so delighted to have you. I have spent some time um, searching you up on the interwebs and learning about you. And I feel incredibly lucky to have you here on Grief is My Side Hustle. So thank you. Thank you, Megan, for having me. I've listened to you too, done my homework on you too. And I'm very excited that we get to chat today. This is going to be fun. Yeah. So I say this sometimes with guests, sometimes my guests are my friends. And then there are other people. Um, I had Leslie Gray Streeter on and I was like, you only live in Baltimore. Can't we just become friends? But as I was reading some articles about you, I was like, oh, she and I are really similar. I feel like. Right. You can tell stuff like that when you're, I know we got the energy going. We got the energy going. So I'm partly looking forward to this conversation just for that. And also because um, I know that you just really, you have been in this for a while and you have done a lot of your own um, transformation with the energy of grief. And I'm really just grateful that you're here and that you're going to be able to share that with our listeners, because many come to the podcast kind of in those early days looking for hope that it's not always going to feel this way. So would you mind just sort of diving in and telling, telling folks, you know, how do you come into the world of grief and loss? Sure. Yeah, so I'm a widow and my husband died in 2014. So back in February of 2013, he was diagnosed with glioblastoma, which is a brain tumor that is terminal. There is no cure. I think they've made some pretty good strides between then and now, but but it still is a terminal cancer. So he was diagnosed with the tumor and told that he had 12 to 15 months to live. So we were just, you know, kind of be bopping along. We were a perfect little family doing perfect little things and loving life and two small kids and everything was wonderful on February 13th. And then February 14th, he was diagnosed on Valentine's day, February 14th, man, everything changed. So that year that he was sick was really just spent making the most of what we could make of his remaining time. So we were cramming, you know, 30 years into 12 months because he was 54 when he died. I was 44 and our kids were eight and 10. So we had a lot of living left to do as a family. And so Mm -hmm. we had to um, just wrap your head around. I don't even know how to explain how you can wrap your head around that because I'm not sure there's an explanation, but you just have to keep moving forward and keep dealing with each day as it comes. And I do have to say, I mean, my husband was the one obviously diagnosed, knew he was going to die. And I don't think you can find someone who accepted that fate as well as he did. I'm not saying people accept, you know, death as being a good thing or anything like that. I'm just saying that knowing what he knew and behaving how he behaved that last year is, is, phenomenal it's just like beyond my my own comprehension because I don't think I would have acted that way if I knew the one with the death sentence I understand this and grievers will understand this like all of the you know fatal terrible chaotic what if I got cancer what if they got cancer what if I was hit by a car what if they were hit by a car yes and depending on how tired I am or where my grief level is, you know, I can spend a couple of days with that. But I have multiple times said to my husband, like, nobody thinks that if I was diagnosed with something, I, w- I would be a stoic, good no. person, right? We all understand that that would be immediate permission to turn into an asshole. But well, that's it. I mean, I'm more I, of an I, asshole. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm an ex-smoker too. And I think to myself, you know, if I got cancer, I'm going to go buy a pack of cigarettes. Like, screw it. I'm me. done. I don't give a crap about anybody else or anything else. I'm just going to go smoke some Marlboro's because I'm 
I'm over it. Right. It's interesting though, because I'm, and I, I want to hear more about sort of what your experience was with your husband in that last year, because one of the things I say about my dad, my dad's death, because my dad died of cancer over a year and his diagnosis was very serious. Mm -hmm. Although inside my family, like I won't speak for their experience, but I will say, I think there was a wide variety of acceptance around Mm -hmm. and really core understanding about how serious his diagnosis was, but not for me. I was very clear. This is a, this is a cancer diagnosis that you, you know, die of within a year. And I had a, I had a friend and a doctor who, when I would be like, everybody's saying maybe these antivirals are going to help. I would call and he'd be like, Nope, still going to die. Yeah. He did die a year and and nine days after his diagnosis. And one of the things that I felt in those moments when I was with him was, and I, I just like, don't know exactly how to say this is it was the realest my life ever was. I get it. Does that make sense? Makes makes 100% good. Perfect. And that in those moments, I wasn't the things that I thought I would be. I was like weirdly patient. Yes, right. I am not a a patient person, but I would spend entire days like getting my ass up to Boston, getting a rental car, like everything that sounds like a pain in the neck, driving there you know, with my little go bags, just sitting with him and none of it bothered me. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like I had to pull myself into that place. Well, you do what you have to do. I mean, you just have to, you get into that mode of this has to get done. I mean, I'm not a great caretaker. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I don't like to be sick. I don't like to take care of sick people. I mean, my children are very rarely sick. Thank God. <laughs> I mean, if they have a headache, it's like take an aspirin. I don't know what you want to do for you. Like just go take an aspirin. You know, I just, you just move on. You just keep going and you do your thing. I don't dwell in sickness. So then I have a husband who is terminally ill and requires care. And I'm thinking who decided I was the person for this job. This is not what I, I don't do this, but like to what you just said, surprisingly, um, an excellent freaking caregiver. I did a phenomenal job. If I can say that and pat myself on the back, because it's a very, um, stressful, obviously situation. You've got two young kids, you've got a dying husband. He owned his own business. So I took over running his business when he got sick, wow. he was self-employed. So, you know, the bills still needed to be paid. So I took over running the business on top of everything else. So I was just in, you know, um, the mode of just get through the days and get done what needs to get done. So you, you do, you do surprise yourself with what you're capable of when you're put to the, you know, when you're really put to the test. I think there, I think there's the thing that we do as humans, right? We hear my husband was diagnosed on Valentine's day with this terminal illness and the immediate reaction, particularly of people who care about you were like, Oh my God, I would never be able right. to handle right. that. Right. right. Which makes us all want to stick pencils in our eyes. Totally stick a pencil in your eye. It'd be less painful. Well, I don't know. You don't know what you don't know. So you can't determine how you would react to a situation you've never been in before. So I would have probably said the same thing. I could never do what, you know, what you did, but you do what you have to do. That's it. It's, I think, you know, and I say this like, you know, maybe in a hopeful way, but also just in awe. I think that humans are capable of unbelievable transformation and growth and, and, and like have a core resiliency and work towards healing Mm -hmm. all the time. And so, you know, a lot of what we talk about here is like, okay, well, how did you bear it? You know, how did you, how did you bear it? How did you function? Who helped you? What tools worked for you? But for the most part, nobody had that map or that plan. Right. And I even, I even have a couple of clients who have sort of like the emergency if the world ends or, oh, right. ends or whatever, right. you know, in their anxious and, and that's not, we don't usually go to a map or a plan. You know, it's like jazz music. Like we are inventing it right. as we go because the way it has to be. So talk, talk to us a little bit about like, how does one both plan for the future without your husband and show up and participate in the year of his dying? I don't know how much I plan for the future without him because I couldn't go there. My mind like couldn't really go there. I mean, I knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to die. However, there's still a part of your brain that shields you a little bit from that 
I mean, horrible, horrible fact. So um, we just, you know, we just took every day as it came. He had lots of chemo, lots of radiation, lots of hospital visits, lots of this, lots of that. So there was a lot of driving around and go, we were uh, 45 minutes from the University of Michigan. I live in Michigan and we were 45 minutes from U of M. So we would just, you know, take that time in the car to just to talk and just to be together. And there was a favorite place that we would eat lunch um, near the hospital campus. And, um, you know, we just we just did those things and just spent time with the family. I mean, he really wanted to spend time, as much time as he could with his kids. And we were very hands-on parents, very active in our kids' lives anyway. He, you know, was a little league coach and did all kinds of, you know, took him fishing and all these things. I mean, he did all the dad things. And so he wanted to do more of that. We did as much of that as we could yeah. um, during that last year. So it wasn't so much focusing on the future. It was just getting through every day, but just trying to um, be there for him and my kids, which was difficult because we didn't tell them he was terminal until later in the year, because, and, you know, as a trauma therapist, you might have a different um, perspective on this, but I didn't know as a you know, as a person whose husband just was diagnosed with terminal cancer, what to do for my kids. I did go see a grief counselor because awesome. I, I did want to know how to tell them he was going to die. That part I didn't know. So I'm kind of like that person you were saying with the, um, you know, the emergency file. I want to, I want you to give me steps, tell me what to say, totally. how to say it. Me and, too. And I'll go do that. And so she was very kind and sweet. So I don't really have a script for you. I said, no, no, I need a script. Like you, you're me. I'm you. Like, how do I say this? And a pen, paper, I'm taking notes. And a pen. Right. And she said, well, you never know how the conversation is going to go. But she was very clear to, to mm-hmm. use real words, death, dying. Yeah. Um, not that he's sick and he's never going to get better because then kids make, you know, think that if they get sick, they're going to die and all that stuff. So that was all very helpful to me. And, um, you know, I really thought that I could do this. Like I could tell the kids and we would be okay. And it was um, a lot tougher to do that part than I ever imagined that it would be Uh, so we put it off for a long time because we just they were eight and ten I don't know I mean I know kids know what's going on I know that they they have more resilience than we think that they do we can tell them more than we think that they can absorb but as an adult I couldn't carry that weight of knowing my husband was going to die how can a kid carry that weight of knowing their father's going to die you know you know I mean maybe you don't know this but there's no right answer to this kind yeah. of stuff and i think you know my first degree is in child development and i think what what a child development specialist would tell you is that telling a kid that something's going to happen a year from now that's bad is probably a great way to grow a very anxious child well that's what i thought right that would that makes sense to me i was anxious knowing what's going on and yeah. how does an 8 and 10 year old wrap their head around it so i that's and i have some hindsight now, but honestly, I would do it the same way if I had to do it all over again, because I just, you know, did not want them to carry that burden for so long in their lives. That was, they knew, we were very clear with them about everything that was going on. They knew we had a tumor. They knew all of that. They knew the surgeries, they knew all of that. But, um, but with the brain tumor, his, his, um, cognitive ability would change day to day at the end, towards the end. And his personality would change. So he would go from a very calm uh, person to a very angry person. So it could switch pretty quickly. And so I knew in December of that year, things were changing pretty quickly. So I told him on one of his clear and more coherent days, you know, we need to tell the kids because my fear, because they were getting angry with him because of his outbursts and his anger outbursts and his personality changes. And my fear at that point was that them being, you know, retaliating to his um, yeah. anger yeah. when they found out what was going on, we feel guilty for saying, I hate you, dad, you know, whatever the case may be, they were going to carry around a tremendous amount of guilt if they didn't know why his personality was changing and they didn't know why things were going on. So we told them in December of that year yeah. what was happening. Did they, did the fear uh, that they would have guilt? I'm just curious, like, did your, do your kids, did they at the time express regret and guilt? They did actually not, maybe not right at that time, but after my husband died, my older son had written, um, had written some, had written some things down. And one of them was, 
it was like a letter. And, and one of the things he said was, I'm sorry, I said this. I'm sorry, I did that. So I didn't know that they were going to have, and Chris, you know, my younger son was, it was eight at the time. Yeah, so he's eight. a little bit, you know, less aware, but my 10 year old at the time was very aware. And he's always been a very aware yeah. person anyway, but um, I just did not want that to be, you know, to hit. and so we talk about that. We did talk about that a lot that, you know, you didn't know what was going on and, and his, he was, he would yell at me. I mean, he would be, he would snap at, my husband would snap at me. He had a brain tumor. He had a brain tumor. Yeah. And, and it was almost like it shifted. It's almost like it was shifting in his brain and it changed his personality. And some days he would sit on the couch and just stare and not even be able to speak. Yeah. You know, he didn't know where he was or what he was doing. So, so we, yeah, there was some guilt. There's some guilt for a lot of things that we think we could have done better, but hindsight's 2020, you know, I mean, you don't know what, one of the things I talk to grievers about all the time is that there is no way to um, avoid guilt and regret. Right. That actually is, it's sort of like this transformation going from guilt and regret to forgiveness, whether uh-huh. you're forgiving them or forgiving you is just sort of part of the part of the grief transformation. And the way that I came to know this, and I've talked about this before, is that one of the things I said to my husband, I was not um, super close with my dad. In fact, we'd had tension most of my life. And I wanted him to know that he was loved. Yeah. I just wanted him to feel loved. And the easiest way to do that was to show up and sit with him. And, and I came to know that I surprised him with a visit. He had had some heart stuff years before, and I had surprised him by going up and he was so touched. And I was like, this is going to be simple. Uh-huh. I don't need to know him and understand him better. That's too hard. I'm just going to go and be with him. So I said to my husband, I'm doing this so that I don't regret anything. Right. It, my father had died. He, I was with him when he died. Our family was there. Um, he died. The funeral director came, took his body away. I was standing on the landing at my parents' house. And the very first thought I had when I could no longer see his body, the very first thought I had was about this hour where I thought he had already been rolled into a surgery. Turned out he was in a waiting area when I came back, he was like, Oh, I was sitting by myself for an hour. And I was like, what? I was outside by a smelly trash can, like on my phone. I could have sat with you. That was my very that first, was, that was the one. my very first thought when my father died was why didn't I spend that hour with him? And then right. I just burst out laughing and was like, Oh, you don't get to circumnavigate the bad feelings. You have right. to have them all. And so part of what I like to talk about on the podcast is, you know, just in general is like, listen, these are the things, you know, not in stages, that's all garbage, but just the constellation of what it's like. If you went to the gym and told the trainer, I want to run a half marathon, the trainer would say like, okay, well, we're going to do legs on this day and we're going to work out your arms, even though you think you shouldn't. And we need to do your core. Like you get a general education about what it physically takes to run. Exactly. And we just do a crap, crap job of that. And so I always ask, and I always ask about children because children have regret and guilt too. For sure. For sure. And they, you know, it's part of their longing. They're longing that things could have been different. The core thing being that their dad didn't die of a brain tumor. Right. So tell me about, you know, in my experience, most people have this like period of hustle, Uh the time in which people are attending to them, that they are attending to things. You're taking over a business. You have two young children. I am assuming that there is a period of time where that all catches up with you. It, it definitely did, but it took a couple of years. Yes. Yes. So tell me about that. Tell me what that means. So I, I was heavy into the business learning how to do this. He, he sold chemicals to the metal processing industry here in Detroit. So, I mean, chemistry, I didn't even, I dropped out of chemistry in high school. Like it was way beyond my comprehension. Right. So the fact that I'm, this is a lot to ask. Honestly, it's a little bit too much to ask. And he would actually, he would ask me to help him with his business before and I'd be like, no, I'm, I'm raising children. Okay. I'm not doing the chemistry stuff. I'm, I'm raising kids. I'm going to do this. You do that. So it probably would have been an easier transition had I accepted, you know, the offer of his offer to help him before, but I didn't, but anyway, so learning that and 
I'm the kind of person that when things get really bad or really overwhelming, I go to work. So pile on the projects and I'm good to go. Hustle, hustle, and and I'll be fine, which is okay. It's, you know, it's a defense mechanism. So it's preventing me from feeling the feelings and doing the work. So it was pretty heavy. I didn't want to, I didn't want any part of it. So we traveled quite a bit in the first two years after he died. And um, I took my kids to Alaska because we took part of his ashes with us to Alaska. That was a bucket list trip for him. He never got to go on. So six months after he died, I'm like, okay, guys, we're going to Alaska. So we did that. And then we, you know, visited family in San Francisco and South Carolina and Florida. And we went to Washington, D.C. because, you know, my son's um, eighth grade class wasn't going to go that year. And so we did all these things. And I was so flipping exhausted I couldn't even see straight so I liken it to you know when you're running from grief it was almost like I was literally running from the grief so I I just got tired you can't keep up that pace Um, but in those first couple of years too of, of taking over the business and learning that I was I was afraid for um I was afraid I was gonna lose the business and then of course I was afraid for my own health yeah. Um, I had every, I figured I had every ailment under the sun. I was going into the doctor probably a couple of times a month, checking every single solitary organ. I appreciate you saying this because again, paranoia about yourself oh my God. or paranoia. So, I, I mean, I still have this. My mom died I, two years ago and I yeah. still like wake up and I'm like, oh my God, I have a heart condition or, oh my God, my sister has a heart condition. And the difficulty is I also am very intuitive. And so sometimes right. those feelings that I have mean something and other times they're just wild anxiety. Well, it's a lot of anxiety. And, and yeah. are you an Enneagram six by any chance? What's a six? six? Sixes are fear rules our lives. Basically oh, we just no. live I'm, in a I'm constant. The ach- I'm the achiever and okay. I, yeah, but, yeah. but anxiety, I'm very familiar with yes. all kinds of pathological anxiety all through my whole life. Well, and you know, my husband was going along and he got a brain tumor. So why wouldn't my headache mean that I have a brain tumor too? We're drinking the same water. We're living on the same soil. It's not illogical at all. So those first two years were just a constant state of um, anxiety, stress. Um, I'm surprised I did not get more sick just because my brain was sick. You know what I mean? Yep. So then I just, um, the world didn't end. Um, I didn't die. Yep. I didn't have cancer. My business didn't go under. Yep. My children were okay. So I thought, huh, I guess I better look deal at with that this thing then. Cause everything else seems to be okay. There was nowhere else for me to hide. There was nowhere else for me to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just decided to um, just kind of before feel the feelings. I'm, I've never been a good feelings person. So it wasn't like I was all, you know, feely before that. So I just really was kind of um, not in tune at all. So what did it mean? I mean, I am a feelings person. I've been doing feelings for, you know, 30 years and I still am like, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do. So, and, and, you know, this podcast really likes to be able to say to people, these are examples of what that looked like. And so like, when you say, I learned to feel the feelings, get nitty gritty for me. What did gritty? Honestly, I mean, this is, I'm not lying. When I say to you, I sat in a chair in my living room and stared at the clock or the window, just letting whatever was happening happen. And if mm. I had to cry, I would cry. If I had to scream, I would scream. If I, <laughs> if I wanted to throw myself on the floor and pound my fists like a temper tantrum, I did that too. Sometimes I would sit on my hands so that I wouldn't look at my phone and have a distraction or grab my uh, coffee or whatever. I would just sit and stare and just say, okay, bring it. What do you got? Let's go. I love this because, you know, one of the things that I think is, um, really like does a disservice to grief work and does a disservice to sort of feelings work in general is to assume that everyone has an idea of, you know, what it means, what feelings are, where they come from and how do we, how do they resonate? You know, what this is making me think of, which is going to seem like a tangent, but I remember being in like junior high or high school and a friend of mine saying like, oh, I'm going to get my period soon. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, oh, I have these cramps and like my skin is bad. And I remember sitting there and being like, 
wait a minute, your body tells you right. when you're in your period. <laughs> and I look back at that moment a lot because I really think I understood there was a lot of ways that I felt like different than other people. But in that moment, I was like, you can be in your body and your body can give you clues about yes. things. I think people are much more dissociated from their physical experience than oh, yeah. they have any idea of. Totally. So, so in order to say you need to feel your feelings, that's like step X for a lot of people getting into your body. So it's possible. And you'll hear from people, you know, one thing that comes up from people a lot is that yoga got them through. Sure. Yoga is a class that teaches people to be in their bodies. Yes, it, it does. Slowly brings you, you know, it's a mindfulness practice. And even the word mindfulness, I have this guy who I adore who DMs me all the time. And he's like, what does this mean? What does it mean to hold space for someone? Yes, yes. What the hell? And he said to me, what the hell mindfulness practice? And I was like, I totally get you. Yeah. Like it's this catch word and we don't really know what it means, but here's an example. And also, you know, yoga is a mindfulness practice, meaning that we are trying to bring our bodies and our, and our heads into connection with each other. Yeah. And part of the reason, you know, particularly if you're a super smart person, part of the reason it's important is that you're thinking about things is not necessarily accurate. Well, I didn't know that. See, yeah. a long time ago, I know it now, eight years ago, I didn't know it. Going through the first two years after his death in a constant state of anxiety and stress, I didn't know it. Yeah. I mean, if I had known that then things would have been a little bit different. Absolutely. And I, and I think being able to say, you know, Mark Brackett, who works at the center for emotional studies in at Yale has written this lovely book and it talks on a lot of podcasts, um, about sort of, you know, the emotions are the electrical energy that's in your body. The feelings are sort of the collection of those things and our thoughts about them. And in order to know anything about either of those, you need to go into your body. Like yep. right now when I'm talking to you, because I'm talking about something that's true, my whole body feels cold. Yeah. But I don't think I understood until I got to group therapy when I was like 24 to even stop and pay attention to that, to the cues that you're, and I'm, I'm doing an IG live tonight with Amanda Saderholm, who was a child therapist. And she talks a lot about, you know, how do we guide people? Well, we have to use the energy inside our body to guide people. Well, it's yes. And I, I wish I knew then what I know now. I really do because I didn't know how to feel feelings. I never, I pushed them away forever and ever and ever. Anyway, this was a big one though. This was death. I mean, this was like the mother load, one, the yeah. mother load. And I had to figure it out, but I had perpetual knots in my neck. Okay. Mm -hmm. So one thing I was doing for myself for self-care was getting massages and I would get them twice a month because we had the massage place where you sign up for the membership and then oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. the second one is like $10 yeah. off or whatever. So yeah. I was like, okay, if I prepay, I have to go because I would always have an excuse, but if I prepay, oh God, I have I to go, too. right? So this yeah. was my good for you, Kim, you know, self-care, rah, rah. So, but I always had these knots and, and I would tell the girl that was my massage therapist, like she would try so hard to get the knots out. And honestly, God, it hurt worse when I got off the table Yeah, of course. than what yeah, I went yeah. in. And I would just say, they don't come out. Like, don't even worry about trying to get them out. They don't come out. But then, you know, you have to stop and ask yourself, what the hell is wrong with your body? So I had to make that connection. Like, no, this is not okay. These knots in your neck, and they were pretty bad. <laughs> These knots are not okay. So they're telling you something there's a message there. I mean, I'm carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders anyway, right? Because I'm running the business and taking yeah. care of my kids and yeah. doing all the things. Yeah. So I was like, okay, there has to be a way to fix this. So in, I'm not a meditation person. Um, I can listen to soft music yep. and be okay. I can read passages and be okay. I just can't sit and be in my, you know, right. My mind all that time. But what I was reading was just Ideas, like you said, you just come up with ideas. And one yeah. of them was just, you know, imagine your body, you're laying down and again, use whatever yep. thing you want. You want God, you want source, you want universe, you want whatever is, is, is over you, looking over you. And they are um, sending light to that part of your body that hurts. Okay. So I would, I would, I think I'm ridiculous. I'm like, okay, Kim, this is so ridiculous. But okay, just pretend like you're laying there. 
and this light's coming to your shoulder and whatever this thing is, is sending you love and light. And it's going to, it's going to help you. And I would do that. And I would think it's not working. I still have knots, whatever, but it did work. It didn't work overnight. It wasn't like yeah. I woke up the next day pain-free, but it was just my initiation into your mind has a lot more potential and power than you even realize. And that was my beginning of, oh my gosh, wow. But it, you reinvented this for yourself. So, you know, part, again, what I love to talk about here is just give us our, your examples of how you survived this untenable thing that everyone believes is not survivable. And even though, you know, I studied all the things, learned all the things, and I still was like, I don't know how to go forward in this. Right. And I think, I think the core education of letting people know that like your body, your mind really does make your body ill and your, it's and awesome. your body can make your mind ill. There's a super highway, you know, your vagus nerve runs up your back and it sends communication backwards and forwards, but also just giving a core example. I read about this in my memoir that's coming out about like, you know, I threw my back out when my dad died. I mean, I've thrown my back out under stress my whole life. I threw my back out really significantly when my dad died and I had, I went to the emergency room. I chose to go to the emergency room, which was terrible because it was like bouncing in a oh. you know, ambulance to, but oh. when I got there, they gave me Advan, which is an anti-anxiety medicine. I was like, what's in that drip, you know, yeah, I yeah. in hospitals and they were like, well, it's Advan and sit. And I was like, wait a minute, what you're giving me basically anti-panic medicine. And they were like, yeah, you're going to feel real good in a half an hour. Yeah. And I walked out of that hospital when my mom died, I was working so hard to do all the things that I know as a clinician. Right. So I have the part of me that's grieving and the part of me that's, a, you know, like a specialist in grief. And I'm like, okay, I need to exercise. I, um, I need to move. I need to move my body. I need to, and Ultimately, I was going to do a yoga class in my basement, a yin yoga class, because I had weird bones start to grow across my ears when I was swimming, which you'd think I would take that as the message of like, stop trying to move. And I, you know, sat down to do this yoga class and threw my back out. I mean, threw my back out in a way that I was like, oh, I am dying. Whatever that is, right. is going to kill me. It took three days. My husband had to like set up a mat for me to pee on. I couldn't get off the floor. That's how much pain I was in. That was really the ultimate of like, okay, I need to go to inpatient. And then once that was decided, my back unlocked and I was able to uh -huh. walk upstairs. You know, really what that the message was, was that I needed help. Right. I needed help. The helper needs help. Yes. And what I think about now, even though I had been told to think about it before, is that it is my back is this unbelievable piece of wisdom yep. that refuses to not get the message to me. So even though what I understood was, oh, you can raise your endorphins, your serotonin level, your dopamine level by exercising, I needed to not exercise. Right. And I will say, because I am a constant, you know, I'm an evolution that, that, being still has been incredibly important. Being slow, being quiet, taking baths, grounding, mountain pose, all of that. And I used to be like a CrossFit person. Right. I have, oh, I get that. I have gained so much weight in this. It has not been easy to stay right. in this. And just in the past, I would say since before Christmas, I wake up in the morning and my body's like, let's move. Right. Let's move. And now I exercise and it doesn't feel like this conflict because when I would make myself do it before, it felt like, I don't think you're doing the right thing. You know, message in my head. Well, that's a good oh. point. It's you're just making that connection. You're just listening to, like you said, both sides, body, mind, body, mind, body, mind. Yes. And what Oprah magazine says is not more important than the intuitive elements of your body. So that even when people say to me, and this comes up in, in therapy a lot, people call me, they email me and they say, my daughter's husband died and this is what she's doing. And really, you know, it's scaring them. Like she yeah. hasn't left the house. She right. hasn't. And what I say is like, there's traumatic loss, which really is your car is in neutral and we need to help you. And then there's whatever we invent yeah. as 
So if she, if you have reason to believe that she's in a traumatic space, which probably means she's had some other stuff go on and this death is on top, you know, layered on top, talk to me about that. Otherwise back the F off and let her, because an anxious body might need to exercise, expel the energy, move, shift. I mean, after my mom died, I basically ran away from home with my kids, put them in the car, ran across the country. And I'm always interested when other gravers are like, yeah, I couldn't sit still. We moved. Yeah. No, I totally understand. I get it. Yeah. But it changes too. So that constant, like my two years of, you know, travel stopped and I changed. And so the, the, the new grievers whose parents are worried about them don't know what they're going through because they've never been through it. They've never lost a husband or whatever this, you know, person did. So I'm always so surprised that people think they know what's better for other people. It's like, who the hell put you in charge of me? And what I should do. Don't don't you think that that comes from a place like I don't I at least I don't hang out with a lot of people who are like, oh, my God, her ass looks fat in those white jeans. Like most people that I know are like, oh, my God, is she okay? And then they open up whatever their experience is. That's it. That's it. So they come from their level of experience. Right. And and. if we were trying to fix a roof, everyone would be like, well, I'm not a roofer though. So we got to call a guy. Exactly. But we somehow, when it comes to, I am afraid of this behavior. I don't understand. Right. People instead are like, oh, I better call them and tell them how I feel about what exactly. So it's more about what they're feeling. That so that's what I used to get very upset about were the, um, the people that would say to me, they would give me the at least comments. I absolutely detest at least. How did so, you handle it? What did you do? Uh, pretty much ignored it because honestly, I would tell people I'm not the grief police. I am not here to change everybody into, into you know, teaching them how to do this. I can't change no. the world, right? So I would just ignore it because, <clears throat> you know, the at least you're not dealing with a deadbeat dad. At least you had time to prepare for his death. <laughs> As if there's preparation for death. There's no preparation for death. So at least, at least, at least I would just, I would get angry. I'm not going to lie. I'd get angry. And then I would just have to remind myself again, you don't know what you don't know. So they're coming from a place of not knowing. It took me a long time to get there. I mean, I, because I really do feel like, you know, if you and I walked into a college right now, we could teach those kids a lot even though they're not going through any sort of loss, we could say, never say the word, at least to anyone. Exactly. You know, I think generally what we really want to do is help people find authentic ways for them to show up for grievers. That feels good. And I spend a lot of time with companies talking about this. Like, what does your company even do? Yeah. Okay. So like you make pillows. Okay. So why wouldn't you take what your company, why are you sending a fruit basket that brought it on their doorstep? Right. Like do something that feels meaningful to you and meaningful to the person. You can't control if it feels meaningful to them, but if they see that you've done something that feels meaningful to you, it will at least land with more grace in a random ass fruit basket that no one was ever going to eat. And I think, you know, for me, I was so angry. Um, I was angry that other people were living normal lives. I, I mean, I still get that way. I still get oh, sure. that way. Somebody the other day, actually, I must have some grief. Like I must have a little resurgence going on. I have found myself like stopping in front of a picture of my dad. I think it's more about my dad lately, I, which is interesting because I don't miss him very yeah. often. But somebody was like, oh, happy 87th birthday to my dad. And I was like, fuck you. I know. Seven I more know. years. You know, but being able to sort of be in your own um, anger and do two things with it. One is like the defend the part of you that is righteously angry. This yeah. shouldn't have happened. It's yeah. total injustice. And also, you know, allow your energy somewhere to go. So I really had this hard time. It was, it was less with my dad. It was more with my mom where people seemed to like, want to tell them that I was okay. Yeah, for sure. They want you to be okay. Really not okay. Right. Like I ended up an inpatient. And so anytime somebody would be like, well, you know, I didn't get a lot of at least what I got a lot of is like, your mother is with your father and and I 
came up with this phrase, which was not to educate people. When I, when it was my mom's little lady friends, I was much more generous because, sure. but it, when, when it was other people, I was like, well, that makes you feel better and me worse. That's right. It's, That's it's, all I can say. But good for you for saying it because it's almost like people need to hear that. Like, oh crap, that was about me. Like they don't even know what they're saying is about them. So if you don't tell them, how yeah, are they going to know? I mean, my assumption is you're, I mean, I, you know, when I was the most generous, I would say my assumption is you're trying to say something that is supposed to feel good. I'm right. just going to tell you, it's like you were trying to give me coffee and you gave me root beer. Like, yeah. This is you, not good. Well, it's like you poured acid on me really. Yeah. What it is. It's like you pour. So after some of my, so it, along that same line, when probably three years, two, three years after my husband died. So my oldest was 10 around 13. So yay, puberty, yeah. teenage years. He went rogue. He went off the deep end. He got into drugs. He did the whole thing. Okay. So we had a whole nother four years of really struggle with him and his, and his grief because he was self-medicating. So my point to this, we were just talking about is people always wanted to tell me what they would do. Do you have a child whose dad died, who is self-medicating? And getting in trouble and doing all these things and, and trying to offer advice. And I'd be like, you, you don't even know what you're talking about. But the things that would, like you said, the people who say things that make themselves feel better. I had several people that would say things to me like, well, I wouldn't put up with that shit in my house. I would never let my kid talk to me that way. Okay, you're not helping me and you need to step aside because that you there's probably nothing worse that you could say to somebody who was in the position that I was in at that time because I was trying to do nothing everything. but judgment. I mean, that's Total just judgment. nothing judgment. That's- so then I had friends that my friends who's, who also had teenage kids, boys, were able to understand what I was talking about. And they would never say, I would never do that. They'd be like, I get you 100%. I'm here for you when you want to vent and whatever else. And so we just went through a long, mm-hmm. arduous process of getting through this. So the anger part, I was beyond angry. I don't think there's even words to describe my anger. And I do think that my friends were like, you know, you need to take it down a notch, Kim, because this is bad. This I didn't, is like I'm really- not, I, I do not present to the world as an angry person. I love anger. It took me a long time to find it. But if you came to my front door, I'd be like, what the fuck do you want? Yeah. And- <laughs> well, that's it. And, and, you're- like, Whoa. and I was like, this is how I am. Take it this- or leave it. Right. And I didn't know again what I know now. So the anger was consuming me, but I think again, knowing what I know now, it was okay. I had to have that absolute near, and I'm talking, I was on the precipice of a nervous breakdown. Yep. A lot of times. I mean, many, many times. So when you talk about resilience and what humans are capable of pulling myself away from that brink of was, you know, nothing short of a miracle, but I had to have all that anger. I had to have all those feelings. I had to do all of those things to get to where I am today, right now. And the relationship I have with my kid right now, today, we had to go through all of it. So I don't, so now I can look at anger a little bit differently with the hindsight and be like, okay, I got you. You got me. We're going to get through this. We're going to figure this out together. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Have you ever seen that um, kids movie Inside Out? Yes. So that movie is based on this kind of therapy that I'm trained in that I love, which is Dick Schwartz's IFS, Internal Family Systems Parts Therapy, which basically the way that I describe it to clients is like, listen, you got a whole lot of options of yourself on the bus. Yeah. And which one does the driving normally? Which one should do the driving today? Which one is trying to carjack the car? And so in my experience, it made sense that anger was driving because there was a lot of stuff that we kind of just needed to plow through bushes and trees. And anger was driving so that sadness and sadness didn't have to. 100%. 100%. And I, ha- that, that is an excellent point. So yes, that, that anger was definitely, um, needed and yeah. purposeful. Yeah. And what, and so when people are worried about their loved ones, that metaphor of like, look, we all have a bus it's filled with parts of us, par- possible drivers. We may even have some hidden drivers in the back. Yeah. Like I, the way that I think about it is like, you know, I just grew this whole other part of me to grieve. 
yeah. which includes, you know, being an educator and a writer, like actual shit that I never did before yeah. is, is, you know, I have a new friend. We've become new friends. And I do think you're shifting your relationship with yourself. And so there's this aftershock with relationships around you and God love the women who were with you with teenage friends, because, you know, I, the people, my sort of crown jewels, five, six people who, um, have just been in it with me. I've just never felt so loved and supported. And while I had a lot of tension and anger about some of the other ways in which relationships were shifting and changing, which I actually take responsibility for because it was me that became different, Yeah, you know, and, and then people who didn't know how to navigate that. But I, now I just sort of feel like nah, the emotional, like math is better now Yes, for everybody. Maybe it's disappointing, hurtful, hard, but relationships change. And what I also remind myself of is like, yeah. And that happened when I had babies Yeah, and that happened when I moved and that happened when going I on got married. Well, I just think again, being in grief is a lifelong experience. It be, it is who you are. It is a shift of who you are. You have to come to know that and, and you will come to know it your whole life and the people around you come to know it, but it's a shift and a change in sort of how you energetically show up. Right. So it's really rocky. And a lot of it is, I think, personal and isolative. So, you know, we do our, we do our grief and our longing for our person. You know, you can long for him as the father to your children, but you are also longing for him as your partner and right. you are the person who, and no one can really do that with you. No. And so when people are like, let me give you advice. Let me give you, yeah. you know, again, what I say in my best place is I believe you mean that with love. I need you to know you don't know anything. That's, that's exactly right. This is a country you haven't even visited. No, you don't want to go there, but yeah, you you don't know. And I, and I, the other thing that I think people always say is like, well, you don't know anything until you've grieved. Some of the people that have been, um, the most painful for me are people who have grieved who are like, I know things and I'm going to come in and I'm going to tell you how you yeah. have to do it and you have to, I know you mean well, that's the best, the best phrase I've got. Exactly. But also you're not able to do it. Can you, can you tell me about the people who did either early days or now or whenever, like who just showed the F up in their own ways, in their own creative ways? How did they do it? What felt good to you? Uh, you know, honestly, it was just listening because I, especially, you know, the grief part, I really didn't, no, I didn't face for the first two years. So I really wasn't, you know, talking as much about the grief, but when my son started, you know, going off the deep end, that's when things became extraordinarily hard for me. And so I would talk about it all the time. So who showed up for me were the people that would listen yeah. without judgment. And I, <laughs> I would tell whoever would listen. I got bunion surgery during that time. I told the bunion you know, surgery doctor oh, yeah, about yeah. it. Okay. I'm telling the bank teller about it. Um, I go into the bank and, um, this woman love her. She's been there for years. And so she would always ask me, you know, how are the boys? And I would say, well, uh, uh, fine, but you know, my, my oldest is doing that, but I would just tell people because I'm like, I needed to make sense of what was happening in my own world. That's and right. the only way I know how to do that is to communicate about the events, not necessarily my feelings about it, but the events that happen, like you're not going to believe what's going on. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And people would look at me like, no, it did not get worse from the last time you were here talking to him. Like, but it did. And then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. So those friends mm. that did not run away screaming, trying to claw their eyeballs out because it would have been less painful. They are my heroes, like yeah. my saviors who, who yeah. just said, I'll listen again, even though yeah. I've heard this 25,000 times and I won't say a word. And I'm like, I don't know what I would have done without those people because the other ones were well, just, you know, you need to just try and be happy. You need to just try. No, 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 no. My world is imploding. 
I had this person I die. Heard of me? I'll just try to be happy. That's so I, helpful. Yeah, why I think Let me go to the Hallmark store. That's exactly. so good. Thank you. Balloons, kittens. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it was. So those were the. That's all I can really say was the people that were um, willing to listen, even though their ears were probably bleeding. Honest to God, they must have been like, "If I have to hear the story one more time, I'm gonna lose it." But there was so much going on in a constant state of flux with my son for at least four years. It was just a constant state of flux. So they helped me tremendously. And it also helped me understand that I can't provide that advice or whatever for other people either. I have to let them be who they are and grieve how they grieve or act how they act. I can't can't provide it either. I mean, again, as someone who's been through lots of death in my life and studied all of the things and learned all of the treatments, really all I can do is offer the hope and the possibility of something being different. Exactly. And if someone wants a concrete, you know, suggestion, I think of it kind of like a waiter where I'm like, here's a menu of things that other people have tried. Some are important, some are good. Do any of them seem like something you would be interested in? I mean, that's the, really the best I have when it comes to trauma stuff, there's some treatment that I can offer. You know, if you're having visions in your head and you can't get them out of your head. Awesome. I know the neuroscience, let me, let's get in there. But, but I do, I really appreciate what you are talking about because, and I have talked about this on air a bunch of times where like people would say, well, how are you? And I'm like, oh, well, and I would tell the lady in Starbucks. I would would tell everybody. And And what I know about that from my own experience is that that is like, you know, you've entered into the matrix and you're just saying out loud to people, this is what it's like here, right? Yes. This is it. You can, you can see, I once, I use this analogy a lot, but I once was, I live in Washington, DC and I was, I, my office used to be in DuPont circle. And one time I came out of my office, it was early in the morning. And you know, those bobbleheads that are at baseball games. Yeah. So ours are ex-presidents. So it's like Teddy Roosevelt, like Washington, and they were walking down the street. (laughs) So I come out of my office and there's like the four bobbleheads from the Nationals games walking down the street. They must've been hired to go to some event or something. And there was no one there. And I was like, is this really happening? Right, is it real? Or am I hallucinating? Like, is this happening? Is this a real thing? And I think that's what we do. When we are, you know, saying to people, let me tell you is partly we're grounding ourselves and this is the unbelievable reality of my life. And we're just asking them to validate us. Absolutely. I can't believe it either. I see it. I can't believe it either. When I went to bed, I mean, I still do it sometimes, but there was a whole year where I would say to my husband, we would be like clicking out the light and I'd be like, I just have to say this. And he'd be like, okay. Like, I just can't believe my mom died. Yeah. I mean, I know she died. Yeah. I know it, but I can't fucking believe it. And I mean, honestly, I still can't believe it. Like I still am like, what? Two and a half years on the planet without this woman? Like how does anyone endure that? How is that possible? And yet I know I have, like I have the pictures in my phone and. And I have dreams some, you know, not sometimes like often where my husband is in my dreams and I will be, so I, I got remarried in November. So congratulations. Thank you. So I am a remarried widow now, but I would have these dreams where I'm with my husband now, even before we got married, but then my, my dead husband's in my dreams. And I'd be so confused because I'm like, why am I here with Tom when Mark is still alive? Like that, I would never do that. So in my dreams, I'm trying to you know, work this out in my brain. That's right. Right. But he's dead and we know he's dead, but there was one dream in particular where, and it was just when Tom and I had just started dating and, um, you know, he asked me, he said, do you feel guilty about dating and whatever? And I said, no, I mean, Mark and I talked a lot about, you know, what I should do and, you know, shouldn't yeah. do. He was very, um, open. He's like, you know, you need to, to get married again. If that's what you want to do, you need to have love in your life. Cause I was 44 years old when he died. And, so I said, no, I don't feel guilty. But in this dream, I'm standing in the middle of the road and Tom's on one side and Mark's on oh, the other. Sorry. I'm not kidding you. And, and I have, it's like I have a pull to Tom's side, to this magnet is pulling me over here. But Mark is standing there at the other side. And I'm thinking, but I can't go over here while you're still, you know, you're still standing there. In my dream, he said to me, it's okay, you can go. Oh. 
<sighs> yeah. So I wrote about this. There's a story in Chicken Soup for the Soul called the Miracle, the Chicken Soup for the Soul Miracle of Love book, Miracle of Love. And so yeah, I wrote a story. That in the show notes, so people. Yeah, that's in the this 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 essay is in that book. But um, I was like, so I woke up probably more peaceful than I'd ever been in my entire existence on earth. Like he told me it was okay. I didn't think I was feeling guilty. I didn't think I was feeling like I shouldn't, but he told me I was, you know, it was going to be okay. And I've had other dreams where I've been mm. stuck. I've been stuck, like literally in boots in cement and I can't move. Yeah. And along comes Mark and he grabs me and he pulls me out of the boots and he moves me to another place. And I think even so I know you've talked about spirituality on other shows too, but even though he's gone, he's yeah. still with me, guiding me, helping me. When I get stuck, Mark is there to get me unstuck. You know, I, so I am, I'm doing this Instagram live with somebody who I would say is much further down the road with that. I, it's interesting that in the first year that my mom had died, I think I really kept even the idea that there would be a visitor energy or yeah. whatever, because I had so much guilt about her death. And what I did and didn't do that I just couldn't have her any closer. Yeah. I'm thrilled to discover that there are all different ways, including yes. like, you know, your spirituality part of your mind that gets to move around and shift around. And I, that part of me is definitely opening up. What's interesting is that my actual experience, like there was an unbelievable sunset the night of my mother's funeral. I had this crazy experience at the beach the morning before when I was practicing her eulogy. I had this moment with a butterfly the day that yes. I was leaving her house. I mean, I could have opted in to deep, like wild, crazy yeah. spirituality from the beginning. Dr. Joshua Black, who was on my podcast a long time ago, talks about dreams. And again, regardless of how you assign it meaning, whether you think the universe has sent it to you, which yeah. I have to say, I do really think is possible. Yeah. Or that your mind and body want to heal so much that they are assigning healing meanings to things in your subconscious, in nature. Either way, it's awesome. Either it is way. awesome because it works. Honestly, I mean, I see signs all the time and people yeah. probably think I'm stone cold crazy. I don't care. They're I'm my signs. They're my signs. They bring me peace and joy. Yep. And I'm telling you right now, they're not random. It's not coincidental. No, 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 no. Yeah. It isn't. And I, it, so I do have a few friends that are a little bit more esoteric. They're a little bit more, you know, philosophical. So that now they're yeah. sending me their signs and they're saying, you know, yeah. sending me the stuff that's happening. So I'm like, not random, not coincidental. That happened for a reason. So I think I to have, myself- I Really, I mean, and this may be because I, you know, I was, I was raised in Massachusetts. I was raised outside of Boston in a Catholic church that ended up, you know, we had a pedophile priest for a decade. Ugh. And what I think about the legacy of that is the odd bifurcation of like trying to follow some regulations and some rules from someone. I mean, my mom used to talk about how I was not a disrespectful kid, how my energy towards this person who turned out to be this yeah, 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 yeah. horrible, horrible criminal. Um, what, you know, I responded to him with the way in which he felt to me, which was, yes. I, I couldn't be close to him at all, but the legacy across spirituality was like that the leader sort of tainted all of the other things. And I think if we circle back to what we said, which is like, you know, you can be instructed in how to be spiritual as a child, you're still going to have to find you have the shit to. that works for you. you so it's to. a little bit like that idea of like, what does it mean to feel your feelings? Like we can say that yeah, we can read that and say that we intellectually believe it, but you still have to find your way forward. Sure. Into that. A lot of what happens to people is that they are dissociating from feelings because it feels like there is a hurricane in the house of their yes. body yes. that will not stop. That is relentless. And so a lot of what we do is just sort of say, listen, let's have an activity that you can do for 15 minutes, an hour, three hours out of the day so that your mind and your body says, oh, okay. She understands that there's a storm. She's attending to the storm right. and it doesn't have to do it all day long. And so then we can just sort of quiet. And that in my mind begins the sort of still place uh -huh. where then you can, you know, plant the soil, grow the tree, whatever it is of your understanding of what helps you 
with this new thing that you have, which is grief. And so I had sort of, you know, over many years, tried lots of religious stuff, churches and, you know, other structures and was like, I just can't make this work. Yeah. And now I'm in this space where I'm like, oh, this is kind of the truest thing I've got going on. And it's, it's stuff that I would have said to you, like, oh, I'm not into that shit. And right. now I'm into that shit. And so well, if it happens enough times, I mean, if you see enough um, occurrences, you got to say, well, wait, this, you know, what's going on? You know, I mean, this- I, ha- I have, which, which again, my mother, this used to make her laugh a lot because several of my dearest friends are Episcopal priests because I left the Catholic church and I went to the Episcopal church because I was like, you guys are kind of the same, except, yeah. you know, you the gays and the women. Yeah. So I did that for a little while. And one of my dear friends is an Episcopal priest. And she and I took this walk one time and I was like, listen, you know, Jesus just never really did it for me. Like, I really liked the Old Testament stories because they're kind of like Greek myths, but like this dude. And he's like, you know, that just never. And, you know, we're quiet, whatever. And then I get totally blown away, like within 90 seconds with this unbelievable thing in nature on our Uh And I can't stop saying to her, like, you know, all the things I know about it. Like, do you know about the celluloid? And I've studied yeah. this thing and whatever. And she was like, well, you know, she's kind of quiet. And she's like, well, you know, like that's also Jesus. <laughs> right. And I was like, what? what? And she's like, do you really think if there is like a universal organizing structure, it really cares if you believe in like some dead old guy? Right. Or if you just have awe about how nature yes. shouldn't even really exist. It's so magnificent. That's right. And I, I mean, I couldn't eat the whole rest of the day. I was like, how dare you call me deeply spiritual? But if, but if you look at it like the way she said it, and then you look at your own life, you're like, okay, there's a lot I don't know. And so how do I decide that it doesn't exist? It, it could exist. It Absolutely. might be there. Those could be angels sending me, you know, number sequences. Whenever I, I see 1111, you know, I always thank my angels. Now, Mark is an angel. He's not my only angel, right? So I thank my angels, plural, because I get these messages all the time. So I have to believe that um, I'm being divinely supported. I mean, I just am. Right. And so you are. And that's the part that I feel like it doesn't matter what other people think. No, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what other people feel. That is the actual truth. Yes. You know, I don't need to show you a fact about it. That is the actual truth. And if that works for you, that's amazing. And if we well, can talk about that, that's amazing. And someone else is going to tell you, I do century rides on my bike and I get yeah. really good endorphins and that's how I grieve. And that's right. Awesome. And 100% awesome. The one thing my therapist has said to me too, when I was going through all this stuff with my son too, because I would, um, I would think something was going on, but then I would talk myself out of it and say, well, you don't really know what's happening. And he said, you do not have to see the fire. If you smell the smoke, you know, something's going on. So that was a big turning point for me. Like, oh, I just have to smell the smoke. I don't have to see the fire to believe that something's going on. So it's like this, you don't have to see, I don't see ghosts running down my hallway. Um, You know, I just feel, and I know, and I believe. So, well, and what I love about that is that sort of goes back to that thing I said a second ago, which is like, I can just sort of feel that I've got yes, some grief yes, going with totally my dad, feeling. right? Like I don't need to associate it with a date. I don't need to, like, I am just looking at the ways in which my behavior is showing up for me outside yeah. of my body and inside of the, my body. And I'm like, look at that weirdness. I kind exactly. of like, yeah, like that's odd. I don't really have lots of experience missing my dad. Yeah. But if we can show up with curiosity and not judgment and not think we know anything and assume that we're growing into this role the same way that, I don't know, we grew as a teenager into our bodies that, that, and, and if we can do that with a lot of compassion for ourselves and other people, whether that means I have to begin compassionate about the fact that I'm really angry because that is the bus driver who has hijacked the bus. Well, the thing is too, you're not, so I had to get over the fact that I'm not an angry person. I'm a person who feels anger. So I got upset with my anger consuming me thinking that I am an angry person and I'm destined to be angry for the rest of my life. I'm not an angry person. Yeah. I'm a human having a human experience and I feel anger sometimes. You know, 
what, what that makes me think of is that, you know, in the world of addiction, a lot of the sort of sobriety work is done in the rooms, in AA rooms, which I think are, you know, unbelievable and transformative and also imperfect. And one of the things when I'm talking to grievers, I always ask them, you know, did you drink too much? Did you do drugs? Did you have random sex with people? Like, just tell me about the stuff that you did where you're like, God, I look back at that with judgment. And, you know, there's always something there's always, you know, for me, it was like, I just let myself eat whatever, which included maybe a year of not eating, even though I knew better. And I was like, you know what? I'm doing the best I can. I had a lot of feeling about it. I have some feeling about it now, but I'm like, you know, we're doing the best we can with addiction. It is really helpful to keep that bus image in mind because sometimes the best people can do is very quickly dissociate from yeah. the intensity of yes. the feeling. Yes. Which is better than killing yourself. Yes. Which is better than beating your wife yes. up. Yes. Is better. I understand that there is a secondary devastation to then having a chemical dependence on something the same way that, you know, I understand that there are messes that our emotions leave us to clean up mm -hmm. all over our lives. But what happens, I think, is that your person dies, you spend 10 years drinking and you come out told you're an alcoholic Yeah, and you lose the, um, you lose the trauma. Mm -hmm. You lose the permission to say, I managed my unbelievable, untenable, unbearable feelings with a tool that turned out to be really dysfunctional for yeah. me. The best that I could do at the time. Right. And so when I say to folks, you just have a very strong addict driver, like yeah, you have yeah. a driver that would like to drive you straight to right. the, the, you know, the, the bar Yeah, he's, and he's very pushy and he's very, and we just need him, you know, we're trying to get him to the back of the bus, Yeah, but there are, I love that analogy. Around. I love that. Well, it just, you know, again, I think I personally, and I'm not, you know, again, people find a lot of health and healing in the rooms. And so I'm not trying to go against what people are being told. I'm just trying to expand on yes. it. It is not that you now are an alcoholic, no, but you do have a very strong alcoholic part that will take the wheel if he sees an opportunity. And so we've got to get the whole team aware of that. So thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you. I'm grateful for your voice in this world of grief and loss. Congratulations and, you know, felicitations on thank your newlywed you. status. Um, and I hope your boys are, you know, healthy and well and doing well. And they are doing well now. Oh yeah. I mean, they're, that's what people say. How are your kids? I'm like, they're well right now. They're well now. We'll see what happens. But, you know, yeah. Now the legacy good. of grief and loss is I don't yes. assume anything is permanent. No. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you. Thank it was you. Lovely, lovely I appreciate it. You. Take, take good care. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.